I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Welcome on this beautiful day. I apologize that uh, we may have had some email problems that uh, resulted in uh, more people not getting uh, notified of this, but uh, we will proceed. Uh, just a few announcements. On Saturday, May 17th, from 2.30 to 4.30, join us and economist Graciela Cicilniski, attorney Marit Delosier, business school professors Nancy DiTomaso and Ernesto Rubin, and women's advocate Patricia Taylor for women and the work world. On Saturday, June 14th, from 2 to 3.30, under the guidance of the Helix Center's poetry group director, David Pollins, we inaugurate the Responses series in which poets read aloud each other's poetry and comment on those poems they've selected. We're fortunate to have two marvelous poets as our inaugurators, uh, P Patrick Rosal and Jean Valentine. Finally, the Helix Center benefit will be held on June 1st at Ginny's Supper Club of Red Rooster Harlem. Please support our mission. We provide these programs free of charge, but we, we need your support. And uh, join us for Chef Marcus Samuelson's Cuisine, a wine tasting guided by renowned French sommelier Jean-Luc Ledoux, Magic by Mark Mitten, and Music and Dancing. And for ticket information, you can inquire at our email address, thehelixcenter at gmail.com. So now on to today's program, Women and Science. Uh, our participants are, if you can raise your hand, Priya Natarajan's research is focused on exotica in the universe, dark matter, dark energy, and black holes. She is noted for her key contributions to two of the most challenging problems in cosmology, mapping the distribution of dark matter and tracing the growth history of black holes. Her work using gravitational lensing has provided a deeper understanding of the granularity of dark matter in clusters of galaxies and offers a novel way to unravel the nature of dark matter. She also works on the assembly and accretion history of black holes. Deeply invested in the public dissemination of science, she serves on the advisory board of Nova Science Now and is a fervent proponent of numerical literacy. She is also a published poet. A professor in the departments of astronomy and physics at Yale University, Priya is a strong supporter of gender equity in the workplace and was on the, <coughs> excuse me, was the chair of the Women's Faculty Forum at Yale from 2011 to 2013. She also serves on the foundation board of the EDGE Certification Foundation based in Switzerland. She also holds the Sophie and Tycho Brahe Professorship at the Dark Center Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen and an honorary professorship at the University of Delhi. She has undergraduate degrees in physics and mathematics from MIT. She's also interested in the history and philosophy of science, as well as technology and public policy, and was enrolled in the MIT program in science, technology, and society, where she was awarded a master's degree and the MIT program in technology and public policy. She did her graduate work in theoretical astrophysics at the Institute of Astronomy, University of Cambridge in England, where she was a member of Trinity College and was elected to a Title A research fellowship. She was the first woman in astrophysics to be elected a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. Next to her, Tal Rabin, is the manager and research staff member of the Cryptography Research Group at IBM's T.J. Watson Research Center. Her, focus, her research focuses on the general area of cryptography and more specifically on secure multi-party computation, threshold cryptography, and proactive security, which the National Research Council Cybersecurity Report to Congress identified as, quote, exactly the right primitives for building distributed systems that are more secure, unquote. 
She obtained her PhD in computer science from the Hebrew University, Israel, in 1994, and was an NSF postdoc fellow at MIT between 1994 and 1996. Following her postdoc, she joined the cryptography group in IBM Research in 1996 and, is, uh, and started managing it in 1997. Excuse me. She has served as the program and general chair in leading cryptography conferences and is an editor of the Journal of Cryptology. She is a member of the SIGACT Executive Board, serves as a council member of the Computing Community Consortium, and is on the membership committee of the AWM, the Association of Women in Mathematics. She has initiated and organizes the Women in Theory Workshop, a biennial event for graduate students in theory of computer science. She has appeared in the New York Times and World Science Festival and on WNYC's NPR Science Fair. Next to her is Anna Ziegler. Her plays have been produced at Seattle Repertory Theater, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, The Magic Theater, Ensemble Studio Theater, New Georgia's Theater J, DR2, Cherry Lane Theater, The Playwrights Realm, Brown Trinity Playwrights Repertory Theater, Summer Play Festival, The Fountain Theater, English Theater of Berlin, Theater 503 in the United Kingdom, Synchronicity Theater, Jewish Ensemble Theater, and Vermont Stage Company, among others. She has received commissions from the Manhattan Theater Club, Ensemble Studio Theater, Virginia Stage Company, and New Georgia's. Awards include the Stage Award, Weisberger Award finalist, Edgerton New Play Prize, Douglas T. Ward Playwriting Prize, and the NYIT Award nomination for Best Short Play in 2011 and 2012. She has participated in residencies and workshops at the Sundance Theatre Lab, O'Neill Playwrights Conference, Williamstown Theatre Festival, Cape Cod Theatre Project, Arena Stage, Play Labs, Chautauqua Theatre Company, Soho Rep Writer, Director Lab, and Theatre Works New Works Festival. I'm going to have to get bigger print after this. <laughs> Sorry, Lark Playwrights Workshop, McCarter Playwright Retreat, Rattlestick Playwrights Theatre, the Arca, the, the Arca Group, Old Vic New Voices, Terra Nova Groundbreakers Playwrights Group, Orchard Project, Ars Nova, Berkshire Playwrights Lab, Primary Stages, and others. Publications include New Playwrights, The Best Plays of 2007, and DPS editions of BFF, Life Science, and Photograph 51, which many of you may also be familiar with. Film credits include a screenplay adaptation of Photograph 51, funded by a Tribeca Film Institute slash Sloan Foundation grant. She was, uh, received a BA from Yale and an MFA from NYU Tisch School of the Arts. To her right, Liz Phelps received her PhD from Princeton University in 1989, served on the faculty of Yale University until 1999, and is currently the Julius Silver Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at New York University. Her lab has earned widespread acclaim for its groundbreaking research on how the human brain processes emotion, particularly as it relates to learning, memory, and decision-making. Dr. Phelps is the recipient of the 21st Century Scientist Award from the James S. McDonald Foundation and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has served on the board of directors of the Association for Psychological Science and the Society for Neuroethics, was the president of the Society for Neuroeconomics, and has served as the editor of the journal Emotion. She is the current president for the Association for Psychological Science. And next to her, Christina Alberini, professor in the Center for Neuroscience, New York University, who has been studying the biological mechanisms of long-term memory for the last 20 years. Her studies explore the biological mechanisms of memory consolidation and reconsolidation, the processes by which newly learned information become long-lasting memories, and how memories are modulated and integrated into complex behavioral manifestations, respectively. 
Her studies also aim at utilizing the basic understandings of the mechanisms of memory formation to enhance memories and prevent forgetting or disrupt pathogenic memories. Both approaches have important translational applications. She graduated from the University of Pavia in Italy with honors and obtained a doctorate in research in immunological sciences from the University of Genoa. She trained as a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University studying the role of gene expression regulation during long-term synaptic plasticity consolidation in Aplasia, California. From 1997 to 2000, she served on the faculty of Brown University before joining Mount Sinai in 2001, where she worked until 2011 when she joined the Center for Neuroscience at NYU. She has received several awards, including the Hirschweil Career Scientist Award, NARSAD Independent Investigator Award, <coughs> excuse me, McKnight Memory and Cognitive Disorder Award, Mount Sinai Dean's Award for Excellence in Basic Science Research, Paul Harris Fellow Rotary Club, Cremona, and NIMH Merit Award. And since 2004, she's been a member of the Council of the Molecular and Cellular Cognition Society and served as the Society's Treasurer from 2006 to 2009 and then as President from 2009 to 2012. So those are the introductions, and we now open the discussion to our participants. Thank you for the introductions. <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah, thanks for the long introductions. Okay, I can start. It you can like start. It's sure. a little awkward to start. Um, so uh, I um, I've been thinking uh, recently about all these issues of. Uh, women in science, because I have to give some speech in a week about this issue. And uh, I was supposed to give some inspiring talk. So I had thought a little bit about my history and how I got here and how women surrounded me um, during my studies. And it, I ended up telling us, I will be telling a story of how when I was doing my PhD in Jerusalem, we were a gang of women. We were all together. We were like four or five women. Um, doing our PhD, and um, and I was even trying to think whether there were men there or not, but I can't remember. But mm -hmm. I remember these four or five women, four or five women, and we were together, and we really helped each other throughout our studies and and so on. And then towards the end of my PhD, I went to a conference in uh, San Diego, and there I saw another bunch like that. At the same time at Berkeley, there was also a group of four or five women doing a PhD in theoretical computer science. So there was the one in Jerusalem and the one in, in, uh, at Berkeley. And it, it was wonderful to see. And then we graduated from um, uh, our, our studies. And all of us got fantastic jobs in research institutions and universities, really fantastic jobs. And, um, and then I was young and maybe a little bit foolish, and I thought, yes, you know, we women, we can succeed on our merit all by ourselves without anybody helping us, and if you're good, you'll definitely get a good job and so on. But as time elapsed, I really realized that we succeeded in some way because we had each other. And we were helping each other throughout that time in a way that we saw other women that were doing it and were getting through it. The Israeli ones, of course, we all had kids. Unlike the American ones, we were simply much older than the, our counterparts in the US. But we went through it and we saw, OK, even if you have a child, even if you're pregnant, you can still get through it. You can still travel. And we were really a huge support group. And, um, and somehow I feel that. I see and in percentages, we succeeded much more than the average woman succeeds who's doing a graduate studies in computer science and theoretical computer science and getting work. 
So I realized that somehow over the time that we need each other and it's somehow for women it's harder. And if they're missing the support group, we succeed less. This was something that I had thought. Um, I don't know what your experiences were, but um, I had felt that I had misattributed our success just to our talent and not realized that there really was also a component of the support group that we got. And men need a support group a little bit less. Also in theoretical computer science, the whole, the whole world is a support group because they're all men. There are so few women. Women in theoretical computer science are top 10%. So, but I felt that it really mm. helped me, and uh, now I appreciate it. And I mean, I think you know one of the things that that I find these days, if I'm on a board or something like that, I'm almost always the only woman in the room. And when you know, if it, especially if I'm on an advisory board, I always point out that I'm the only woman in the room, and that's a problem. Um, and then the answer I always get is. Yeah, I know there just aren't that many senior women, you know, in our discipline. But the good news is, you know, half of our graduate students are women, half of our postdocs are women. But then I always say, well, you know, when I was a graduate student, half the graduate students were women, and half the postdocs were women, and now I'm the only woman in the room, you know. And so I think it is the case that we're training a lot of women these days. Um, but you know, talking about support groups, you know, maybe you have it at that level, but not everybody is getting the same opportunities going up right. um, and being asked to do the same things. I, I imagine in your discipline, yeah, you get that I a lot. That, right. um, I, I realized that I often don't even notice the that you're the only woman the because I'm so used to the yeah. idea of um, what normalcy is. Yeah. But um, you know, thinking about sort of issues, I think there's sort of two things, right? There's the demographics and then there's the culture. I think the issue with the demographics is um, worrisome. It's, they're interrelated, of course. Um, and I think for about, if you look at the data, for about 30 odd years in many disciplines, not mine, but in a lot of disciplines, especially in the biological sciences, for example, you've had about 50-50 through this sort of metaphorical pipeline, right? But it's progress up the pipeline that seems to be really problematic. And that's where culture intervenes. And it's culture with big C, right? I mean, it's our communities, our professional communities, culture, nurturing talent, support groups, mentoring versus sponsoring, um, all of that. And then culture with a big C, which is the outside world and stereotyping and expectations and all of that. I think that has changed. Um, there has been progress, but I think it's just too slow. Um, it's just been too slow. And I think one of the problems has been that I think a lot of the debate has gotten mired in the issue of whether women um, are capable of doing cutting edge science or mathematics or abstraction. I think that's a completely pointless debate because uh, what we do know is that our own sense of sort of stereotyping um, and expectation that culture offers bigger impediments that we're fully aware of. And we now know from all these wonderful studies, and there was a study by colleagues of mine last year, which um, was really quite disturbing, amazing and disturbing at the same time. This is a study by Moss Rakusin and Joe Handelsman, which showed that both men and women are biased. So if you look at you know, uh, a resume with um, 
a male name and a female name circulated to people looking to hire biology lab assistants. We're not talking of faculty, we're not talking, this is a summer job. And it's clear that both men and women faculty were biased against young women. And were biased against not just hiring them, but offering you know, the male candidate a higher salary, but also not wanting. The thing that was most disturbing for me was the fact that they were less likely to mentor the younger, want to mentor the younger women, sort of help them improve their resumes so that they could do better next year. So I think that the fact that culture intervenes in, these, in this very huge fashion, I think is much more constructive to talk about that than to get mired in, you know, are we hardwired and can women do this or not do that? I just think that's not a very constructive debate. But, you know, I leave it to those of you studying psychology and the brain to... Um... Well, what's interesting about that, that Joe Handelman study was that that was a replication of about 50 experiments that exactly. had been done previously. The only difference between the study she did and one that, that you know, someone like Madeline Heilman, who's yeah. at NYU, has done over the years, is that they asked scientists. Right. You know, as if scientists think they're immune. That's because they're objective. From, you know, right. Standard implicit bias, right? Because you know. They're, no, they're objective. Yeah. yeah. Economists are the worst, actually. We're better in the ivory towers. Right. We're and it got a lot, I mean, I'm glad it got a lot of attention because it's, a big, it's an important issue, but it's an old finding, yeah. you know, that now we've just replicated with scientists. Absolutely. That, you know, we have these very subtle implicit biases that, and, you know, no one's immune to them because we all grew up in the same culture, whether you're male or female. You know, it's not like, I grew up in a culture where all the scientists were women, you know. Um, you know, you're not immune to those things, regardless of who you are. By the way, the point that I found shocking, I, the point with the mentoring, I agree with you, that was really horrifying because that's a stepping stone towards other thing, and I'll mention another research that I thought that related to that. But the fact that the women were the same as the men, that, that wasn't shocking to me, though. I, mean, I, I always <laughs> hope that, and by the way, there was just, uh, I heard on NPR another research done recently, not just about gender, but also about race, that oh, yeah. black um, uh, faculty are not more um, responsive to um, uh, black students and so on. So it's across the board. It's not just that women are failing. But with the mentoring issue, in the past, there was a research which I, I saw, which I thought somehow related to this point, that um, they did um, a, a statistical examination of how many papers women have in science and in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And their percent of the papers was much lower than their percent in the population. Okay, so let's accept that their percent is 20%, but at least let's hope that they have 20% of the publications in these leading magazines, but um, uh, journals. But this was not the case either. Their percents were lower. And I was and they were trying to give all kinds of explanations of why this happened. But I always felt that the reason was that when the woman comes to the advisor to start discussing what problems are possible, what she can, could work on, and so on, the advisor will never give her the problem that has the potential of being a nature or science uh, article that they even aim lower when they're giving them the research. And because that, they can never go as far. It's hard for me to say because I'm not in these areas, so this was just my assumption. In my area, it's slightly different. You also have to go and find your own problems. So you can't blame the, the advisor. But I think that when it's a lab issue, 
It's much more that the advisor hands mm -hmm. the problem and that that even is not done in even mm -hmm. keel, that the women will not be offered the better problems to work on. Was that the, the, was that the New York, I think it was the New York Times article, maybe at Yale as well. That's right. Yeah. I, this was so long ago that I don't yeah. remember the details. It was about a, an undergrad at Yale. Was it undergrad? undergrad this was yes. recently. A woman who was dissuaded. This, yeah. this was recently. I read that one. But mm -hmm. what I'm telling you is something okay. that I heard maybe 10 years ago okay. about uh, research in the beginning of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, there are these studies that yeah. also show from, I think it was uh, in one of the Nordic countries, probably Sweden, where even funding, there's gender bias in who gets funded. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, and this was in medicine, that you know, women um, tend to be less successful right. in a systematic fashion, and who gets controlling for everything else. And who gets invited, invited to write commentaries in science and so nature. Teacher, yeah. yeah. Um, as well. So after, uh, sorry, one second, I just want to say, after, oh, after the um, uh, summers thing, then at MIT they put a commission in place, uh, which, um, I forgot the name of the woman who edited it. Nancy Hopkins. Right. Yeah. And there she even found that women have less lab space. Right. That everything is constrained for yeah. women. And of course you have la less lab space. You can have less students. You can do less research. It's uh, continuous. Well, the nice thing I like about the MIT report, and I think that was before Summers, they were complaining for years and years, years and years. About, yeah. the, and to MIT's credit, they finally did what any good science institution should do. They got the data. Right. I mean, it took you know years and years and years of women scientists at MIT complaining, you know, with this kind of subjective thing that you always hear, like, you know, this person gets a little bit more because they got this article and you only had that article. But of course, we all know the, the way these things work. You know, if it was the genders were switched, it would have been, well, they got that article and you only had that. Right, shifting sense, right? Exactly. <laughs> and um, and so they actually, I thought they were actually very brave um, because they got the data and they published it. Right. You know, and they acknowledged it, and they didn't just acknowledge it among themselves. I mean, I was president of the Women's Faculty Caucus at NYU for a while, and we also got a gender equity committee together that did the same types of things. But you know, NYU's not putting their dirty laundry for everybody to read on the web the way that MIT did, um, which I kind of think was great. You know, it, it provided some support for. I mean, it, those women suffered for a long time, you know, and that was obviously horrible. But the fact that MIT got the data, acknowledged they were wrong, and acknowledged the dean, if you read that report, acknowledged that this was sort of unconscious and unknowing, which is really where the issues are these days. I mean, I think most people have good intentions. You know, it's just sort of how they, um, you know, how they act in ways that maybe is not what they really intend and they aren't even aware of. You know, but I think, you know, one thing I have is someone like Christina nearby, you know, as a colleague, so we always are talking to each other about these little things that happen. And that's where I find my women colleagues come in handy today, because they're like, I know exactly what you're talking right. about. So. I, I, I agree with you that this is the best thing. And unfortunately, not all of us have it. Yeah. As I say, I can go for a month at work without speaking to a woman, because there are just none around. Yeah. And uh, it's a problem. And um, it, because also I feel, I have a very close friend in my group, but he's a guy. And I feel that when I do eventually meet with my friend who is, she's in another group and so on, the conversation is different. Mm -hmm. I can discuss the issues with him sometimes, but 
we speak on it about it on a different level when I speak to her. It, it, there's something about our joint experience that makes her advice different, and um, and you're lucky. And no, I am. I'm very yeah. lucky to have colleagues like Christina. You know, I have a friend down the hall who's Layla, but you know, named Layla. But it's the same thing. Like, if I didn't have somebody to sort of every once in a while who totally right. gets what it's like to be a woman in science right. that I could go to, and right. you know, I think I'd go crazy. I think one of so, for example, at Yale we have this uh, group called the Women's Faculty Forum, and that's been absolutely fantastic because yeah. it's interdisciplinary, it's cross-disciplinary. It's basically all the senior women from across. And I think um, I second your point about the data. So every five years, we publish a data yeah. called yeah. You know, the view of men and women at Yale. It is public. We make a little less noise about it. But um, you know, and the, it's sort of guidance to our community, and it's helped set the aspirations for the university. Yeah. You know, as I said, the prog there is progress, but you know, it is slow. And, and I think we cannot underestimate the power of women getting together in institutions, right, across levels, across seniority, um, yeah, and trying I, to change. I, I agree with that, but I also um, want to point out to something in addition to that. It's great to have colleagues to go and talk to. It's great to have support. But that's not enough, right? Mm -hmm. Things are not changing, actually. Changing much too slow. And, and so how do we promote changes a little faster? I mean, for me, it was a wake-up call, actually, looking at the data from MIT, which I uh, met by chance. <laughs> uh, I was a Brown at that time, assistant professor, so young faculty. Um, and a colleague, a man, um, was supposed to go to the NIH to one of these meetings where they were discussing about women and minorities, and he couldn't go. And so he said, could you please go? Yeah, I can go. I will tell them that you go instead of me doing So I went. And it was not really my choice, and I was like, oh no, why are they sending me to this thing? It's gonna be a waste of time. Because I wanna uh, put my time into my work rather than, and then I go there and I see this report and I was shocked. 50% women and men at the graduate student level uh, and postdoc about that. But then when they start to go into professional career, assistant professor, you start to cut down in half. 25% assistant professor, about 12% associate professor, women compared to men, about less than 10% full professors. So this was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. How much did we change from there? Mm -hmm. If I look at our department, yeah. same. Yeah. It's well, a problem. When I was at Yale, I was the junior faculty member in psychology. Peter Salovey was one of my colleagues. And this was before Peter got tenure, right? So when I first got there, he got tenure while I was there. Um, there were no, no senior women on the faculty. And then half of the junior faculty were women. And we're sitting in the room someday, and we bring this up as a, you know, and they say, one of the, our senior colleagues said, well, we'd love to hire, a, you know, a good woman faculty. We just can't find any good women. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, half the junior women sitting there. are sitting there, <laughs> right, in the room. And, um, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, I mean, you see this drop off, and it often gets blamed on, you know, women having children and things like that. But you also have to understand the stuff we put up with, you know, the, the kinds of little tiny insults we get on a daily basis. The microaggressions. The microaggressions, you know, it just, 
it adds up. And if you put men in the same situation, I think more of them would leave as well. <laughs> right. And it's not the case, right, that there aren't family issues and stuff, because women tend to have less support for those types of things as well. But it's also the case that, you know, you, it, it, you know these things do get to you unless you're unbelievably confident. And confidence is something that often is lacking in young women scientists. There's a, some beautiful work by a woman named Buju Dasgupta who's shown that, you know, if you, um, you know, women who are in women colleges with more women professors in STEM disciplines have much more sense of self-efficacy. They actually do better than the male students. But the, how well they feel they're doing, whether they think they could have a career in it, whether they think they're capable of doing it, has a lot to do with whether they have female professors. So it's not just the case of, you know, you need women to, you know, you, you have to be confident yourself. That actually comes from the environment that we create, which is another reason to really think seriously about who we're putting out there as your examples of women. Um, but Peter is an interesting case, because Peter's a social psychologist or a clinical. And I think this was a time when Mazarin was there too. Mazarin and I are old friends, yeah, we collaborate. And she, but you know, he knows this world well, so he's in an interesting situation to be a university president who Absolutely. really knows about um, you know, implicit bias and the subtle effects and these you know, subtle environments that you create that make, make it easier or not so easy for women to, be, to promote. So We're I'm very hopeful. We're very hopeful yeah. that now that he's at the helm that the pace of institutional change is going to be much more rapid. I want to say two points about this thing. So first of all, I agree with you that the discussion whether we can do science or not is not that important. But I'm one person that I don't think that women and men are the same. I do think we're different. And don't start asking me how I think we're different because it's slightly unimportant. But on the confidence issue, I think there's no question about it. If you look at averages, Women are not as confident as men are. I hear my colleagues speaking at conferences about their work. I would never use the superlatives that they use about their own work. I would never use it about my work. I even once had an incident that some guy was talking about his work. He still didn't mention what it was. And I was thinking, what work does he have that, is, that satisfies these descriptions? Turned out it was a joint paper. But I would have never used these things. <laughs> so I, I think that um, we do lack in our capabilities of self-promotion. I think it's, it's a little bit of how we are and what we are. And I think if I look around at one of my women colleagues, they definitely are above the curve in their confidence and so on. So in order to survive in this world, there is unfortunately a selection happening um, based on personality, and I'm sure that we're losing great scientists in the process. But I don't know process. if it's personality. I think it's, I think it's the environment we, we create. I mean, if, you go to, if you're an undergraduate and you're just trying to figure out, am I any good at this, and all you see are men, and you, know, you don't identify with any of them, and you're not getting the extra support. I mean, I think you know they, they may. That is not her, you know that is her environment and not just her personality. I agree that the question of role models is huge. That's not an issue. And I think that, for example, in uh, computer science, we need to pass some hurdle, and we'll have like a slightly exponential growth for a slow time. It won't bring us to hypersense, but I think if we have a bit more, there are women who don't see female professors at all due to the percents right. in the universities. I agree with that. 
But I still think, when I'm looking at the women who have survived, a person like me, I would definitely say that I do not lack in confidence, okay? And anybody who knows me would say that as well. But I have to tell you that I'm not like the guys. I see it, even on, on these uh, little things, you know? Each of them, they think that they're the best. I don't think that I'm the best. I think that there are people around me who are very, very talented. And I would never, but these guys, if you ask their inner, inner self, they think they're the best. Right. But you know, they I mean, might I not say it out loud, but they think it. You know, and I we don't. don't know. <laughs> I've had a few say it, so. I've had a few say it, so I definitely think that. Uh, so that is one point that I wanted to touch upon. But I want to go back to your point about change and how do we bring it about. And I am a person that I believe that we need to take active measures to improve these things. And it's a two-edged sword. I don't think that it's a great solution, but I think we don't have another solution. I think that things, that things actively need to be awarded to women. And not for a second do I think that we'll be lowering the quality. I think we'll be fixing for the biases that the people who are awarding the things have. Because all these things right. like that. But, but you know, before we go there, I think a more radical way to do that is just to shift the idea within our communities of who a successful scientist is. So I believe that it might be more fruitful for us women to not buy into the sort of male notion of success, the male notion of the presentation of the self, all this self-promotion, whatever, break, you know, make a break and say, well, there are different ways to be outstanding scientists. You don't have to talk yourself up all the time. And I think that shift in culture will be much more, uh, will have more staying power I agree with you as an end goal, but I don't agree in the order because I think that our percents are too low to impact to say this is what a, su a successful scientist is. I think we first have to increase our numbers a little bit oh, yeah. the and then we can start and, and change the culture to say, look, this is also success, this is also good. But to raise the numbers, I think that things. No, I think need you've got to, to do both at the same time. You can't uh, wait yes, for the demographics. Yes, yes I to... agree. It, it has to be hand in hand. But I think that at this point, um, people are a little, little bit hesitant about saying um, um, uh, the NIH is giving funding. There's 30% um, um, of women. They need to get 30% of the funding. I'm sure they're getting below their percent. Just to actively say that, because then. The, the people, the other people will say, she got it because she's a woman. She didn't get it based on merit. But I say, who cares? I have to tell you, I was on, a, I, I organized this uh, workshop of women in theory, which was meant in the introduction. And in this workshop, I always have a panel. It, the, the workshop is for graduate students, and all the speakers are faculty. And the women love this panel. They eat the stuff that the, um, uh, professional that the women say, the advanced women in their career. And I invite, invited a professor from MIT, Nancy Lynch. For me, Nancy Lynch was one of the women, my, one of my role models. She was there already, superstar, amazing research, breakthrough result. She's like, and then she sits on this panel 
and she starts telling her story. Turns out she was a female hire at MIT. Nobody today would think of her as a female hire. And she had said, you know, take these opportunities. Who cares how they arrived? And make the most of it. And shortly after, people will forget that this was a female hire. Just prove yourself and do the work that needs to be done. And that's what I'm saying, you know, let's get the money. Let's get the positions based on these, I don't want to call them affirmative actions because I don't think they're affirmative, correcting actions because it's just to fix for the biases. <laughs> and let's make the most of them. And we, the women who are here currently, we're like the generation walked through the desert, you know. We're gonna suffer, but for a better cause. We'll, it will be said that we got things that we didn't deserve. Can I just say, I mean, it's, you know, irrespective of that situation, I, I, I need to go back and know that it's not, women are not necessarily always women's advocates. I mean, the, yeah. all of the literature suggests that women are equally gender biased as men. You know, and I think you really need to pay attention to that. I mean, you know, one of the things is they think if they're going to fix this situation by getting a woman on the search committee, that makes no difference Nothing whatsoever. And it just makes all of your women do extra committee work. Right. You know, I mean, that's, that's a classic thing of a woman faculty <laughs> members want every committee and we can't get our work done because we're actually always doing service and the service gets dumped on us. But right? I didn't say and to put us on committees. I said to give us the amount of research, What I'm saying is, I'm saying is bringing women, like promoting women more through is not going to change if you don't change the culture. The culture. I agree it has to happen hand gonna, in hand, but what I'm saying, yeah. Back to your point of um, um, role models. Of role models, if you get if in computer science, there'd be more than ten percent. Mm -hmm. Then the young students coming in through the pipelines will have the role models. So I'm saying that's why I said we're the generation of the desert. We will be the ones who will get things, and it'll be said that we didn't get them for merit. But the minute that there's um, enough women. It'll impact the younger females, and they'll stay on. I'd just like to interject one thing, because I, I think it's of great relevance. Um, Rosalind Franklin's experience, speaking of you know, a previous generation, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective as a non-scientist and having a, a deep knowledge of her experiences, how that might expand <laughs> the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of... I, it's been, I mean, it's really interesting for me to sit here and listen to everyone. <laughs> um, because I'm not a scientist, and I, I mean, I'll say, <laughs> I'll say two things very carefully. Um, is that my mic, I guess? Um, and, and one, one is that, I mean, it, it, I, I mean, just coming from, a theater perspective, and I know we're not here to talk about theater, but, but I'm a playwright, and we're having all of the same conversations sure. in theater, and it's, it's really discouraging, um, I think, to, I mean, I'm not surprised that the same conversations are happening in the science world, but, the, but I guess what I find most discouraging to hear is just that everyone knows about these biases, and, not, and just knowledge of them doesn't do anything, apparently. That's, right. and that's certainly yeah. true in theater, too. There have been all these studies um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that uh, suggest that female artistic directors who run theaters are not any more um, uh, likely to program uh, women's plays, for instance, and there are just as many 
Um, there are just as many women, if not more, writing plays right now. There are more women in graduate school, and 13%, I think, of, of plays um, produced around the country are, are plays written by women. So, I mean, it's the, the numbers are very stark as well. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that your questions about sort of what should come first um, are, uh, I mean, are certainly the questions. Um, but I don't think, at least in theater, and it sounds like in, in the science world too, um, there, there might not be enough enthusiasm to, to, to really make those changes because there's so many factors at, at play and you just don't know Mm-hmm. how to unravel them. But um, as far as Rosalind Franklin is concerned, I mean, I, I think when I was writing that play, and, um, and I'm not a scientist, I assumed that I was writing a piece of history um, and that the landscape in 1953 was radically different than the advanced landscape in the science world for women today. And of course, I mean, it comes as... Um, no surprise to anyone here, but to me, the, the response to the play uh, was shocking, has been shocking. It's been done all around the country, and, uh, and most... So why are you shocked? Uh, well, I mean, I was initially. I'm certainly not, certainly not anymore yeah. that women would say, oh, the, the, the challenges are really still the same as they were over 50 years ago. And, and I would say largely um, uh, sort of older women scientists mostly espouse that view. It seemed like it seemed like younger women scientists, for the most part, had were more optimistic. I don't know if that's something that you guys find, um, but it is. It does seem like a shame that a lot of the legacy of, of trailblazers, you know, over 50 years ago is, you know, it's all. It's just not. It's not changing fast enough, and that's. It just seems to be true across every field. <laughs> and that's yeah, what's you know, so I discouraging. The, I think I, I have to say that things have improved in the sense the, it's the work of the previous generation that has made my walk down the corridor somewhat easier. And that, you know, that has to be acknowledged. I mean, there has been some progress, um, very hard earned, but again, you know, insufficient. The Nancy yeah. Hopkins. Yeah. yeah. I have to say uh, about your point that Maybe people who are a little older feel differently. I was being interviewed on the, uh, um, for the New York Times, and I was 10 years younger than the other women uh, researchers. It was uh, um, Jill um, from Columbia, I forgot her name, and um, uh, Marie uh, King from, uh, she's a biologist from Washington, never mind. Anyway, they were all, um, and April. Um, Elena Aprilia. Elena Aprilia from, yeah. but they're all like 10 years older than me. And we were all discussing, and then I was the most optimistic in some sense. The interview ended, they started screaming at me. How dare you say that? You know, it was like, and, and I was thinking, how can it be that even the sense, and I was saying that it was hard. I didn't say that it was easy. But I felt that they, they sensed that for me it was easier and that I was trying to make light of how hard it was. But I wasn't. I did say it was hard. But there was a, a measurable difference between how they clearly felt it and I felt it. So I guess 10 years did make a difference. And I hope that we're making a difference for women who are a bit younger. I don't know. But hopefully things are improving slow, but too slow. But you know, I think that 
there is a point to be made about you know this larger culture scene, right? So I did my schooling in India, but you know, I came here as an undergraduate, as a young undergraduate. And it has to be said, from my understanding of American culture now, compared to my experience growing up, when I was growing up in India, there was absolutely no taboo about, you know, girls can't do science or math. This was before the pre-Barbie um, times, right? And actually, the, you know, the, the cooler kids in school did the harder stuff, and that's how you became cool. I mean, because you were doing challenging things. And that is very different. Having taught students here now, for, you know, as a faculty member and you know, an American now, not having gone through the school experience here, however, I noticed that there is a huge component that is pertinent to when girl kids and boy kids are in school and come through high school. There's something about this particular version of stereotyping of scientists and mathematicians this whole sort of cool versus nerds thing that gets started and gets reinforced very early, very, very early. So we're actually losing a lot of, you know, it's another matter that once you make it and you get to have a PhD and so on, the point is we're losing a huge amount of talent beforehand. So um, why do you think that this, non, uh, this issue affects the girls more? Then it affects the guys. The social issues that you're talking about are relevant well, to the guys Well, I mean, it affects the guys well. in the sense that, you know, the ways in which it affects the guys is that this image of the need to be successful, to the need to be the breadwinner, to, to, you know, to sort of, you know, they have very different pressures. The pressures that operate on the women are pertinent to their dropping out from science and math, right? And for young boys and men, it is about success in the world, stereotyping of how it is that they get to be successful in the world. So, you know, there are pressures for both genders. But I think pertinent to our conversation now is the fact that a lot of girl kids feel very discouraged and drop out of science and math in this country early on. And I think that is what I find quite sad because it can be reversed and you know and often it comes back to some of the questions we were talking about which is it's really how we view success and failure and I've noticed this in um, my teaching I'm collecting the data uh, for the last seven years or so uh, which is our perception of how successful we are so you know I, I have I give out a survey before I do a test and it's just coded by gender, and it's anonymous otherwise. And I ask them, how do you think you're going to do on this exam, right? And then I look at the distribution afterwards. And you know, it's quite skewed. If you look by gender, the guy kids always think they're going to do better than they actually did. And the girl <laughs> kids actually um, do better than they This thought. goes exactly back no, to but the, on the, other the hand, confidence of how you think that you, how your work is, that's what I said, the guys always think that they're great, and, and I, I, I don't want to say about the rest of you, I don't think I'm the smartest. Right. But you know, I think the, it's the response that's more interesting. So it will always be the girl students will come to my office when they don't do well on a test and say, oh, Professor, I really don't think I can handle this material, and do you think I should drop the class? And the male students, not surprisingly, will always say, well, you know, your test was too hard. Um, you, didn't, uh, you didn't quite cover what you uh, did in class on the test, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the usual stuff. So I think there is something that gets shaped much earlier about success, failure, confidence, OK? 
kind of, you know. But I think it's something that happens well before you're standing on a podium and giving an invited talk in front of, you know, the American Astronomical Society. It's just, you know, the, the, so I think the problem, um, the solutions have to start at every stage, right from, you know, infancy, from our expectations of, you know, when you have like a girl child versus a boy child. I see a lot of my friends who are parents and, you know, just the subtle ways in which the expectations are different and how they get loaded on <laughs> to kids. And then through the school system, you know, and the teaching of mathematics and sciences as well. So I think the problem is very complex, and I, I personally think that there isn't a sequence. I think we have to solve it at every stage, and that's when it's going to finally kind of um, and I, and I think, come you know, together. I'm the, the president of the Association for Psychological Science, and you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do as president of society, I mean, we are this society of scientists that study bias mm -hmm. you know, and produce the science on bias. And right. interestingly, we haven't been evaluating ourselves. You know, so that's, you know, that's actually been one, my one initiative, because you're only president for a year, about what you can do is actually just start to get the numbers, much like MIT did. But I think one of the challenges we have as a science who studies these things is, you know, we've been very good at documenting. We've been very good at documenting implicit bias, the type of studies that, you know, Joe Handelman did, which have been done in, in lots of other contexts. Um, and we haven't been good at coming up with solutions. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's actually a fault of our science, is that you know, we can't, I mean, documenting is obviously the first stage of anything, and knowing what the problems are, and knowing where the, you know, where the issues are. And I agree it's at every level, and you sort of need to decide which level you're gonna work on. But I mean, we also should, as a science, be able to produce some great recommendations. Right. And we haven't done a very good job. I mean, the one recommendation that has come out of all of these resume studies which isn't usually used, is to decide your criteria for hiring before you, before you even look at an application. Because what happens right. is your criteria shift, shift depending on whether it's a male resume or a female resume. Right? So decide your, you know, have real criteria for promotion and real criteria for, um, you know, for hiring, like what you're looking for in this position before you ever look at an application or before you even have the information to evaluate anybody. And that seems to reduce somewhat right. this bias. But, I mean, nobody follows that. But having said that, you know, there, we haven't gotten a lot of other good right. ideas that the science would say really works. And I think that's a fault of our science is figuring yeah. out, you know, we're all sort of, you know, conjecturing on how we're supposed to fix this. And the truth is the psychological, you know, the study of psychology, the experimental study of psychology is the science to help answer those questions. And we haven't done that. So about the solutions, um, I didn't really mean to say that uh, we should prioritize and, and so on. The truth is that what I believe in, that we have to shoot in all directions. Exactly. I think you maybe be able to give some good recommendations, but I think that we really don't understand completely the source of the problems and what's driving any, everything. And because of that, we should try as much as we can. So I know that I, on my personal level, I try to do various things. I go to, to schools to talk to students, and I talk to women. I, I mean, I go to elementary schools and high schools, and I talk. I do this workshop. In my hiring practices, I'm aware of these things, so I always pay attention that I'll have a, a female summer student. If I'm uh, on a committee, I, things that I organize, I try to do that one of the speakers, at least out of the bunch, will be a woman, so I pay attention to these things. And I think that maybe what we need to do is just to raise our level of attention and say, everybody, don't wait for instructions. 
do locally whatever you can do and try to uh, right. improve and maybe that will um, cause somewhat of a change. Yeah, I just wanted to respond a little bit to, I mean, I think the work that's come out of psychology has been fascinating and fantastic. The only thing I really worry about is that, you know, if ultimately, I'm, worrying, I'm worried that we maybe get a little paralyzed because if ultimately all of us are biased, then that's that, right? But there are some very interesting solutions as you, I mean, interventions, little nudges, interventions well, that... Well, even just being, I mean, probably one of the best interventions. It's just being aware that you're... It's just being aware that you're not immune. That's right. You know, that you are not immune. You know, I am a woman in science. I'm not immune, immune. to gender bias right. in science. Right. 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 And knowing that, and individuals who are aware of the fact that these things are subtle, they're based on our culture. It's not a personal, it's not about your beliefs, it's not about your morality. Yeah. It's based on the fact that you grew up where these were your role models, right. you know, and these are the stereotypes you learned, and that's gonna that's gonna seep in in little ways that you aren't necessarily thinking about, whoever you are, and being aware of that actually changes your decisions. So I think right. this is really, you know, so you know, just even discussions now in search committees, having them read about implicit bias, being thinking about it as they're doing things, you know, I've been in faculty hiring committees where they'll be like, well. You know, she hasn't published anything without her advisor. How do we know it's her ideas? I'm like, I'm like, we don't hire anybody who doesn't publish with their advisor, ever. You know why? You know, and I get calls saying with a male student, you know, did you have anything to do with that? And then I get calls with a female student, like, did she have anything to do with that? You know, you get it all the time. You see it constantly. Right, but I think. But you know, if you're aware of it, you would never. When I point out to the NIH grant officer who asked me if I had anything to do with my own work how sexist that sounds, he's horrified. He realizes in a second. Right, but I mean the point is it, that you know, know, even if you're aware, I mean it seems like you have to be persistently made aware all the time because no, no, your job's I mean, never I, done, I, right? I, don't, I agree that other people, you know, if you aren't thinking about it, but somebody who's pretty well versed in this, you know, you do kind of just all of a sudden make that, you know, every time you write a letter, think about it, right? right. Think about the decisions that matter. And I think just even having that you know, in a search committee, a conversation in a search committee before you start, it does change people's thoughts about things. You know, just, just, it does make a difference. And, but I think people have a hard time accepting the fact that they too are biased. may yeah. be biased. Right. You know? So on top of all these things, as I said, I think we should do everything. Everything that's mentioned mm -hmm. should be done. And of course, these things are very important. But I also think the decisions should be made that are just operational, that you have no room for deviating. For example, with funding, any field that has 25% women, 25% of government grants are going to go to those women. And then there's no room for deviation. They're going to have to choose a woman to give her the money. And I think that these things will help. First of all, it will help because we'll have the money. And then it'll also slowly enable these women are going to have students. I found, by the way, that any guy who's ever worked with a woman has changed his perception. That these men, because if the, the woman was good, they see it differently. Because there's nothing like a, a close-up example. So you see that those men are better. So a woman, she'll have a lap, she'll have more money, she'll have male students. These guys will change their opinion of women. They will grow to be heads of departments and so on. And they'll have a different, so it, it'll seep in some ways, just making sure that we get 
our fair share of the resources at any given time. But how do you persuade people to make that happen, I guess? I mean, it, it seems like the- Rules, laws. Right, but, but who, who, who is- You have to, you have yeah, to advocate for Promoting it. them and enforcing them. I mean, it just seems like even the most progressive people in, in various fields want these things to happen, but then don't, don't actually enact any Right, and that's why they won't be the decisions. The decisions going to come from some governmental office. Right, we're giving the NIH this money for each field. Here is the percent that goes to women. But I mean, I think part of the the reason why this is not simple, definitely in academia, and you know, and there may be similar things that operate in other creative fields like yours, Anna, is that there is this notion of a meritocracy, and and a shared understanding of what is excellence. And I think that's the tension. The tension really is that if you do anything proactive, you I'm are doing it at the expense of a, a meritocracy and excellence, right? No, I don't no. agree that we're going to be losing on the excellence. This goes no, I'm not saying we are losing. I think that's the but fear for right. people. It's a two-edged two sword. And that's why I said, we're a generation that we will need to suffer being told that we got it just because there was an allocation. I can live with that. Right. I have no problems. I do my research. I'm happy with what it is. I'm confident about what it is. And if this will make things better for the next generation, then I think we've gained something. No, but I, I mean, think what you're saying is exactly you adhering to the definition of the guys what they said was I'm not saying, no, no, I'm just saying that that's the problem. This is not my opinion. I'm just saying that the tension comes because the people who are currently in power see that you are diluting excellence if you make an allowance but for proportional representation. Okay, right? so you have to This talk is not my opinion. Yeah, okay, so you're talking to these people who just make the decisions, okay? It's not when you're in a department, this is money coming from the guy's pocket and going into the girl's pocket, and he's unhappy and he doesn't want to do it. But I'm talking about governmental administrations. You come and you tell them you're biased. You give them the whole discussion that she's saying. And you show them that they're going to make these decisions in a wrong way. And based on that, you say, and now you have to put the rule in place in order to prevent the bias that women will get 30% of the funding if they're 30% of the field. And then he'll no, be convinced talking, that he's not losing an excellence. But that's the point. I mean, how you, do you, you convince all the, the men is the issue? How do you make this a policy? Is where it's at. We have I mean, to work. This is a, this is a suggestion no, no, yeah. that I have that I'm doing something <laughs> yeah, about. I mean, I mean but it's I complex, think right? Great. As, as we yeah. have discussed, it's complex. But there are very simple things to do that I don't even see in place. For example, for example, in the in academia or in the institutions where things can be under control, they could. Uh, are women paid less than men yes. or equally? Let's get less. the data. Let's change the numbers. Are they more, in more committees, less important committees? Let's get the data, let's change the yeah. numbers. This is easy. Yeah. It should have been done yesterday. 
or day before. Yeah. Let's hope it's going to be done tomorrow. We have the numbers on those at NYU. I mean, they, they are being done at NYU. And? Right? Yeah, they're done at Yale. Yeah. We, I mean, when they first did this, when they first did this, there was a big discrepancy between, I and mean, we have a gender equity report, there's a big discrepancy between pay. And so the university over the years has, you know, tried to make sure that becomes less so. Where, where the discrepancy is at NYU right now is, is a lot in the promotion rates. I was and going to say another and parameter like that, that can be controlled. controlled. Exactly. Yeah. So. For us too, that's the challenge. Yep. And the challenge but, but, is... But, but that is the responsibility. Those are people The, the, people, the problem decisions. with NYU in terms of, just, just because I know the data at NYU, there aren't enough women in science to get good numbers. That's really the issue right now. So we have very good numbers for the humanities and things like that. There just aren't enough women in science departments to have anything more than examples here and there, so we can't actually do you mean to, look to look at systematics. To look at systematic, look at things systematically. So you, the numbers are too few in science to look at any systematic discrimination. Whereas in other departments, they were able to do this type of stuff. But in science at NYU, it's still the numbers are still so small that you can't well, pull out anything. I have to there are things that they don't require. No, I agree. I mean, a lot of numbers. Sometimes yes. I get into the stupidest bets with my friends. I don't know when I'm, uh, and then I just want to prove the point. So we were discussing about salaries and about salaries of professors in history. So I went, I looked for a top 10, a top 10 public university, Berkeley in history, top 10. All the salaries, of course, are, are known. I went and I checked the salary of every full professor in that department. Uh, you see, I have a little bit of an OCD thing. So anyway, I, I go and I look, and I don't remember. First of all, I was shocked that people in history could make $203,000 a year. I, I was impressed. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I start and I look at the salaries of all the people in this department. And what a wonder. The, top, the bottom nine salaries had seven women, and one woman had a salary higher than that. And there were like about 30 people in the department. And this has nothing to do with sciences. This was just in the humanities. So we know we're not doing well. That's not but, even but a question. Those, those things can be easily fixed, should be. You would think. So I wrote to the women in the, to two of the <laughs> women in the bottom seven. And I asked them, can you explain to me what's going on here? Is it an issue because you're less senior? Because I don't know anything. You know, I took a list from the department. I don't I think they know. They probably don't know. Why they didn't they answer my emails. <laughs> they didn't answer my no, emails. I mean, but, you know, I mean, I think a lot of institutions are trying. Actually, in fact, I must admit, I mean, Berkeley is an exemplar in many ways because it's a public university. You know, so they have a vice provost and this amazing woman, Angie Stacy, who's been you know, looking at the data and trying to equalize. Um, but I, I think part of the uh, question in institutions like mine, for instance, is the lack of transparency for some of this data. Exactly. You know? and, and, it, and the reason I think this is important is that the same culture of lack of transparency propagates to promotions and tenure, exactly. right? So. I think this whole, um, you know, we sort of touched upon this, this idea of shifting criteria and what the real criteria are and how you evaluate people, the biases that sort of creep in there, those are even hard to quantify. So, because we don't actually yeah. have the statistics on, you know, it's how many women are actually put up for yeah. tenure, yeah. how many get it, don't get it, yeah. why, et cetera, et cetera. 
So those are things that we should all definitely push within our institutions to learn and understand and diagnose much, much better. So recently, um, I was involved with this uh, Swiss foundation, this group called the Edge Strategy Group, where they've been, they've been working so far on trying a very clever, cute idea in the corporate world. So what they do is they look at, you know, they're at the, they are um, devoted to pay equity, uh, basically gender pay equity for the same work. And what they do is they look at institutions, corporations, and they look at survey, employee survey data about you know, how much they're getting paid, their satisfaction, whether they're supported, mentored, et cetera. They look at the HR policies that are you know, pertinent to that group, and then they talk to the CEOs, people in the C-suite, about you know, how is it going, how are the promotions going. And then they do a triangulation to look at the consistency. I mean, is the perception of the employees in alignment with the policies. And they find these huge gaps. And you know, this sort of, it's a real diagnosis for companies. And so we recently got a grant from the Sloan Foundation to adapt this methodology for the university setting, and Yale ran the pilot. And what was amazing about it, as you know, at Yale, we've been collecting the data. The Women's Faculty Forum has been collecting data for, you know, for, for about 14 years now. So we understand what's going on in our universe probably um, as best as most, you know, most of the well um, um, universities that think a lot about these matters do. And this one pilot immediately sort of showed us, you know, pointed out what the problems really are and what, you know, and, and especially in the promotion and retention of women. The fact that there is a lack of transparency about expectations of what it takes to get promoted, how the evaluation is done, um, even once the expectations are laid out, um, and then what really happens. I mean, there's a real gap and mismatch in this. And these are the, I mean, these are the things we absolutely need to bridge within institutions, you know, talking about what are the things that we can do. And I think we all have to be pushing from within um, as well. well part of, I mean, we, so at NYU, we have a women's faculty caucus. I was president for a while. But the, part of the problem is it takes so much work. Right now, like, we can't find anybody who wants to be president. president I, I was going to say. And it's, because, you know, it's just been so much. So, you know, a bunch of us ex-presidents of the women's faculty caucus are kind of forming a committee of people to run it. But it takes so much work. To go and, and nag the deans Again, and do. It's not compensated. It's not compensated. It's just another committee that you're on, and you have to be persistent. And you know, it's just and the burden so. falls on us too, right? I mean, I think that's the one thing that has been interesting in astronomy is that there is a growing group of powerful men who have gotten on the cause and who are calling out. These yeah. things within the community and institution. So, for example, you know, with speakers at all the major conferences, if the look, list looks out of alignment with the membership, you know, a lot of men have become yeah. really important spokespersons for uh, these issues. We are going to go to the audience for questions. I just wanted to ask something from you. Uh, you, you said you were first in Israel before you came here. And um, I have never been in, to Israel, but I have heard uh, that, for example, women are a lot more active in the army. And women are uh, involved teaching men about how to shoot rifles. 
at uh, some of the uh, training facilities. So is there a different, because uh, in terms of looking for causes, the psychological causes everybody knows about and talks about all the time, but in terms of societal causes, is there a difference between the way women succeed in various fields, including science, in Israel compared to the US? Okay, so I, it's a little bit of a long answer. So first of all, things in the army have changed drastically. When I was in the army, um, I was assigned to a unit. I was bilingual. I spoke both English and Hebrew. And it was um, a unit that needed translators. But when I got to the unit, the female officer there told me, no, only men translate. You're going to go and learn to be a secretary and learn to type, which, by the way, turned out to be the best thing in my life. Because they went to, and I learned how to blind type in English. And you know how much we all use computers, the best asset ever. But um, I didn't know that in 1980 when I joined the army. I wasn't so happy. I didn't see the future. So um, the army itself has transformed drastically since I was there now um, 34 years ago to now. Women now are involved in positions like you're saying, um, but they're all educational positions. Women teach how to uh, operate the computers on a tank, how to um, uh, the, the systems in a plane. They do a lot, a lot of things, all theory. There are very, very few women in combat. So the Israeli army and any army, I'm sure even the American army, where women, I think, are slightly allowed in combat, I'm not exactly sure what the situation is, is still extremely chauvinistic. There's no question about it that the army is not an equalizer. And I can tell you a, a little anecdote just to exemplify this thing. Uh, my sister is um, the dean of her law school in Israel. And uh, she was put on a committee um, where the head of the committee was a high-ranking uh, officer from the army, one level below the um, chief of staff. And uh, there were four professors on the committee, a professor from Tel Aviv University, from Haifa University, and from Jerusalem, and my sister. And uh, they were interviewing people. And every time that a person would come in, he would say, um, this is Professor Cohen from Jerusalem. This is Professor Levy from Tel Aviv. This is Professor Smolansky from Haifa and Sharon. <laughs> every time, she said that every time yeah. a person would come in, that's exactly what would happen. So in some ways, and people from the army are very influential in politics, in companies, they're considered to be um, very, um, of course, leaders, no wonder. So they play roles in these, um, in these organizations. So the biases do carry over from the army. And I would say um, that women are, we have the same issue with, um, uh, women in the sciences, in the departments. You look at deans uh, of schools in the sciences, very low percent in my area in computer science, very, very few uh, women faculty. I would say that the Technion, which is a leading institution, two or three. I think I left Israel in 1994, until last year they didn't hire a single female uh, faculty in computer science. So that gives you an indication things are not good. 
So I wouldn't say necessarily worse than here, but I yeah. would say um, that uh, there's an issue. One thing that I do have to say is that Israeli women, uh, due to financial situation in Israel, they need to work. Here are many women uh, who marry um, uh, uh, men who um, earn a lot of money and so on. Many of them even haven't gotten a great education. Usually they have great education because that's where they met the successful men. Um, uh, they stop working. In Israel, not an option. Every woman has a job. Maybe it's not a career, but they have a job. The women are in the workforce, I would assume, uh, maybe in higher percent. Interesting article in the Times a couple of weeks back that even at the uh, high school level, the perception of results in math. Yes. You know the article. Uh, but please repeat because I don't. The, okay. The, the interesting thing was I'm sorry, I'm horrible with names. The, uh, our friend here from astronomy noted a lot of women, actually girls in high school, panic at math even though their score, it was very, exactly the phenomenon that was talked about, about coming in, the guys dream the test was too hard. too hard, the girls say, I want to drop the class. But this was in high school. At 75, a guy was going to try harder, the girl was looking for a way out. This is cultural. Now, I grant you, I came from a high school where that was unacceptable, but I think we were the rarity. Is, that, are we, is the problem beginning that the pro it's clear the problem begins that early. And the issue of papers, two observations. Is it a choice of safe topic, the same phenomenon effectively, that a high-risk topic might be embarrassing, so you don't do it? A low-risk topic is much safer. And what about in the resume studies, what about I forget if that resume study had a category for names which are an, uh, unisex. Yes. Like Jean in the US and Jean in France getting the same, the obvious cross-correlation issue. And what about the British trick of uh, just using initials, leading initials? Well, the, I mean, part of the, just to get to the very last thing you mentioned, I mean, probably, the, you know, probably everybody's fa favorite example of gender bias, you know, is this orchestra study, right? So right. basically, yes. once they started to Claudia's, do yeah. auditions behind a screen, right, all of a sudden, orchestras became equalized, right? right. Um, now, the problem is, you know, we never have a situation where we're interviewing somebody in science without knowing right. who they are right. and meeting them and, you know, knowing something about them. So doing something like that is not possible. The interesting case is the government grant review, which at least in theory, I thought, no. was supposed no. to be name sanitized. It can't, it can't possibly can't be. You know. you know who does this research. Yeah. And I That's review the problem. It. Yeah. Right. yeah, it can't possibly be. So it's true only in admissions, possibly to grad school, that you could do some sanitation, but the minute that people start publishing papers, it's over. Yes, I had a very funny case in that point. Fran Allen, who you probably know. The first Turing Award winner. And the first IBM first fellow, Sorry, first, first IBM female, female fellow, yeah. had a whole collection of stories because when she entered the field, of course, all her publications were F. Allen. 
Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of confusion when she showed up at registration. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, just, I think you already mentioned this. Of course, the, the, you know, some of these issues start very young, way before high school. Yes. Yeah. You know, way before high school. Well, things. the issue with yeah. Vanderview is the fact that despite the theoretical name-wide, the fact that everybody knows who's doing what research yeah. at that level. Well, because it's peer sure. review. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. a um, yeah, I guess I've worked, you know, for many years. I studied computer science and got a master's degree in computer science. I was probably the first person in my school. We had five computer majors at a women's college when I graduated. And I think what's been disturbing to me, I don't know if this is a question exactly, but um, the studies I've seen recently are around the time I graduated, it was probably about 37% or so female graduates of computer science. And today it's maybe 12%. And I think I've seen a lot of things, you know, it it is a complex problem, but I've seen a number of things, and I think some of it is maybe cultural. I'm not sure the reason behind it. Um, You know, it could just be that women tend to think in more liberal arts and concepts and we're encouraged to go into those topics versus um, I think that with... You know, even in India, I see many more women at work from India and other countries. You know, I would say I feel like an extreme minority in an IT department as a white woman at this point in time. When I first started working, I would say it was maybe 30% women. I see the numbers going hugely down. And I see also another disturbing trend for me is kind of the... um, I would say startup mentality, where I see a lot of very young people bringing in their friends, and you see kind of the Silicon Valley, you know, even that TV show that's on now. It's all guys, and they all are together in a garage, and they don't consider women in these roles. And they don't shower. And even, (laughs) yeah. We don't want to be there. And Facebook and social media, you know, LinkedIn, um, you see someone's picture, you immediately know if it's a woman. It's not even their name. It's You see what they look like. You see their background. So anyway, I'm throwing that out. I don't know why the numbers are so low now among you know computer graduates and technology, but if there are any comments on so that. So I want to support your point with the data. Um, Priya was saying before that in all the sciences, things are advancing, but there's no question that computer science is going backwards. That's a known fact. The number are decreasing. Um, uh, Also, when I was studying, um, we were 25 to 30%. Today, um, the numbers are much lower. Um, It's an excellent question what's happening um, to computer science, say, compared to math, because a lot of computer science is somewhat connected to math. Definitely, when you're doing a degree, you study math as well. Math is going up. We're not. I think um, that... It has something to do with the vision that the world has of what it is like to work in computers later on. But the truth is that I'm baffled by it. Okay, so the environment maybe is very male-dominated and goes by the male definition of how things should be and so on. But so many of these startup companies do things that women should be so happy to be doing. They relate to social issues. They enable things, um, uh, improvements on things that are dear to women's hearts, that they um, deal with in their lives continuously, but they could really have a huge effect working in such startup. 
doesn't do it. Doesn't do it for computer science. Um, we, on top of the women in science, I think are facing yet another challenge. And I don't know what's the source of the additional problem. And, uh, but you know, um, I just want to mention here that there, I've been reading about, and I'm sure all of you have read about Maria Clow and the, sort of the initiative that she's been doing about uh, freshmen. You know, one of the barriers is this idea that you have to be an ace coder in order to start a startup or whatever. And so I think she's trying to get at that by getting freshmen uh, women um, started on coding and by revamping how it's taught. And he's, she's done a very successful experiment. Um, and let's hope that sort of ratchets. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, but you know, I think the startup culture thing is puzzling, is very puzzling. Yes, yes. Um, but you know, once again, it's, see, there's such a mythology around how a company gets started, a successful company. It's a bunch of guys who are friends who, you know, that. Um, but they could join, they don't need to start. But I have to tell you guys a story about this Maria Clava, who you have to know her, she's a complete character. But she um, has all, the, all kinds of ideas, and of course she does a lot. Um, she left, she was the dean at Princeton, and she uh, left to be the president at Harvey Mudd. But once I had <laughs> met her, and she had this idea that she wanted to get to uh, J.K. Rawlings. And she thought she had a way because um, she thought that through Toni Morrison at Princeton, she would get to Oprah and she'd get to J.K. Rawlings. <laughs> and what did she want J.K. Rawlings to do? She wanted her to make Hermione, did I say the name correctly? Rowling. Rowling. No, Hermione. 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 Oh, you mean Harry She wanted Potter. Hermione. She wanted J.K. Rollins to make Hermione study computer science. <laughs> that was what she wanted to do. And uh, I, I don't mean Harry Potter, but I know that it didn't happen. And in yeah. fact, I saw her. Exactly. Um, uh, I, I think that Maria Clava then realized yeah. that maybe it wasn't a normal path for uh, a, a, a magician no, but, or a sorcerer. No, no, but I think that, you know, this is, it's a very, it plays to a very important um, point in public culture and media and the presentation of women and girl children in the media. And I think it, we have to think really hard about how to use the media to subvert some of these stereotypes. Um, I think that is a, it was going to be a lot more effective than we actually imagine. Um. Um, well, first of all, just in terms of what he mentioned before, the names, I remember uh, reading, I don't know, maybe a year ago at most, that uh, this article of a, a man was applying for a job in construction. He just lost his job looking for a new one. He had tons of experience. Now, his name is Unisex, Kim but he couldn't get an offer anywhere despite his experience. And then he looked at the resume, tried to figure out what's going on. He realized it was probably the name, so he changed one minor thing on the resume. He wrote Mr. Kim. And suddenly offers poured in out of nowhere. <laughs> so before that, the same resume wasn't getting anything because of this whole mentality that you were talking about. You know, I mean, from high school, 
I'm not sure exactly what age it starts, but it needs to go in. Everybody like on the internet was getting mad at him, but why are they getting mad at him and not the owners of all these companies? And you know, in many cases, even it's just local companies, like huge chains or something. I mean, so you know, the, the, the <laughs> yeah. bias operates <laughs> because there's such a gendered notion of profession, right? So who's meant to be doing what and who's meant to be excellent at what, yeah. That was a very interesting. And there was also, like, you were talking about being, you know, like wandering through the desert, or whatever. Um, I read about uh, one of the first women in uh, Princeton. They didn't start admitting women in, as undergrads until 1969. And she said that when she was in an economics class, the professor said to the three women in the class, I don't know what you're doing here. I'm not going to call on you throughout the semester. And he stuck to it. So, you had an academia people doing this, you know, and then in the workplace, I mean, where do you start to rehabilitate society? Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, the day you're born, there has to be a, a different level of teaching. I mean, it makes me wonder, do... It's hard to sure. convince an economist that he's not, he or she is not rational, it's usually he. <laughs> Hi, I, I teach at a community college, uh, I teach writing, and um, my question is the model of women in sports. Right now, you don't have to feel that you're an athlete to play soccer. You know, your kid, they have teams in every junior high school or high school. There's a culture, but 50 years ago, 40 years ago, they wouldn't let women on a tennis team because they thought it would give them a heart attack. So what I'm asking is, to what degree have the women in science started efforts to make doing science, however that means, whether it's from the point of view of cooking or um, looking at women, you know, biographies of women in science, it seems to me that has to happen from grade two. And I wonder, because so that the culture then, the expectation is not such a rarefied expectation. And also, you haven't really talked about class in relation to uh, these access. Mm -hmm. for, for example, at this community college, I'm teaching working class people whose parents are working class people and who know they're working class people and who are, you know, hoping and praying that they're going to even get a job. Or, so that where's the access of science? How is science making itself, inserting itself into the popular culture other than through the great discoveries, the stars, and the screw-ups? Right. So actually, uh, my field, I think, has is doing some very interesting, innovative things. And one of the projects is something you must have all heard about, this notion of citizen science, getting citizens involved in the doing of science, all age groups. And of course, you notice that you know children younger people are really quite overrepresented in that group. So this is, so for example, there's a project called Galaxy Zoo, where there's now so much data about external galaxies, other galaxies, that um, you, know, you need help. Um, astronomers can't classify galaxies um, on their own. It's often done by eye. It's actually more reliable done by eye than uh, automating it. So what they've done now is these projects have put the data, in this project's called Galaxy Zoo, they put the data out and anyone can take a small training session to understand what it is that they're doing, and they can train and they can classify. And uh, so for instance, uh, and then people are looking, and even I have co-authored a paper with a woman who was a Dutch school teacher who found this bizarre object which was unclassifiable. And it turns out there's many of them, and um, she actually ended up on a scientific paper with all of us because she found the object, and we figured out what it was. It, it turns out it wasn't quite, a, it was a light echo 
wasn't quite a galaxy. But, you know, I think astronomy is trying, and I mean, and it's, it's trying not as self-consciously as, you know, it's just sort of opening up um, science, not with the view of the gender, but, you know, really access, you know. Um, there are people who do not have the access to get into educational institutions where they can get started on science, either school, high schools, they don't go to good enough schools, or um, because of economic barriers. Um, I think you know there's some effort, but there really isn't as much uh, work from what I can see on class and the intersection of gender and class. You know, but all of these things are very fraught, right, in terms of access to admissions and affirmative action. All these things are quite fraught. But I also think the notion of socioeconomic status is, is one of the reasons why we have a lot fewer minorities populated, you know, and you're looking at black Americans, for instance, you know, because there's a correlation between race and socioeconomic status here. And, you know, I have great students, but, you know, they don't, it, it, you have to feel somewhat comfortable financially to invest in a career where you're not going to really make a salary till you're 40. Right. You know, and so I do think that actually plays a bigger role in some of the racial differences we see, you know, um, in, in science, which are, which are profound. Mm. But and also the sort of uncertainty in the career. Of, also, you know, there's you know, uncertainty, uncertainty as well. Yeah. And the, the fact that you have to move, right? Because, I mean, this is pertinent because yeah. it makes a difference to women as well as uh, socioeconomic status. Yep. It deters people who feel that they don't have the freedom to indulge, yeah. you know, they see this as a, an indulgent career. So most of my, you know, most of my students who, you know, who don't come from somewhat wealthy families will go to medical school instead of going into science. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not that, not that medical school isn't science, don't get me wrong, but right. they'll go in for, to be practicing doctors. Yeah. An observation, yeah. the medical school, medical, medicine is an interesting example. There have been a whole bunch of comments made, both autobiographical and statistical, mm. that even though med school classes enter at 50-50, mm -hmm. pediatrics has become almost a female preserve. Right. And surgery, even 40 years after, after women broke into surgery, is highly hostile in many cases. And the anecdotes that I've heard people tell me, and I've seen in print, are the worst of frat house hazing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about how early the problem becomes, two anecdotes. One is the uh, computer science achievement test mm -hmm. makes very interesting statistical reading in terms of who takes it and where. Heavily white, very he unheavily minority, mm -hmm. and very heavy in certain strips of the United States. Mm -hmm. The problem starts early. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there was also some very interesting comments made recently by Neil deGrasse Tyson mm -hmm. on an interview panel about the obstacles he encountered being African-American on his way to the directorship of the Hayden Planetarium. Mm -hmm. Makes upsetting reading when you hear it. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much for having this talk. I think it's very, very important and, um, and very germane to all of society, not just women in general. Um, I'd also like to say that a lot of the younger men, um, and this is sociological, it is not anyone's fault, uh, a lot of younger men are, seem to be more 
interested in what women, having women as a part of their whole career as opposed to the secretaries or the receptionists or the whatever. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, another little thought in there, and that's women as they age. Um, I was thrown out of a job uh, to, in 2009, like a lot of other people were, and I'm a paralegal. Um, I've been for many years, and there were no jobs. They need their attorneys, they need their secretaries, they don't need paralegals, you know, because everybody does those jobs. Um, when there's a lot of money around, they use us because we are very important. We do a lot of work uh, that both of those other careers do. But in the meantime, I got thrown out of a job. So um, I heard about, my father had been an electrical contractor, and so I, my love of math came from him and my mechanical abilities. And I heard of uh, a training course, uh, a pre-apprenticeship course called NEW, non-employment, non-traditional employment for women. And it's not an apprenticeship program, it's a pre-apprenticeship program to get, help women get into the unions. And we were expected, and I, I got in to the pre-apprenticeship program, and we were expected to carry enormous weights. I carried, a, uh, they showed us how to, sh how to carry sheetrock, which a lot of buildings are made out of and a lot of things are made out of, and it's as, about as big as I am. And I was taught how to carry it, and not just pick it up, but I mean actually walk around with it and things, and carry huge toolboxes, full of, you know, all kinds of tools and, you know, all kinds of things. So it was just amazing. And also, I was taught incredible math. I have amazing math skills because of that. And I went to private school. There's no reason, a private girls' school. There's no reason why I shouldn't have learned it there. But that was in the old days when, you know, I also had nuns and some of them were in retirement or nearby there and they sort of like kept them around and that's fine you know that's what happened but in the meantime I lagged a bit in my math skills but given that background here I am um, <clears throat> over 40 <laughs> and uh, starting a new career in that sort of thing and uh, the other thing that they, int they introduced was the idea that we have to really mind our own businesses and not talk to people and men or women in the unions because they'll get at us. They're, they're you know, trying to get our spots and they're trying to get rid of us. And they're trying so it's like this amazing development of uh, explanation of, of the culture. And uh, it was very different than how I was taught and, and living as a paralegal and, and things like this. So it was... It was just a very interesting education. Um, I think if we wrote screenplays uh, about that sort of thing, uh, it would change things, talking about the cultures. I think the Big Bang Theory is great, except the women are stupid, most yeah. of them. And I think it would be incredible, incredible if the women were not so stupid and they actually you know, were portrayed as different things. But women as they age, I mean, I can write a screenplay. I'm actually trained now to write a screenplay because I was a theater major in college, and which is great, but I went more for the arts even though I loved science. I really loved science. But I did go into the arts because I loved that as well. And it fit my personality a little bit better for some reason. But, so now I write screenplays that do that. But what do we do for older women? When I went to that construction school and could not pick up that 61 pounds without throwing my back out um, and was never retested even though I worked at it, I was never retested, and they didn't want to hear about it. Um, I said, okay, now what do I do? You know? So I talked to someone who uh, was an engineer, a woman engineer. 
And then I went to Cooper Union and talked to the people over there, and they were like, oh, look at your, you know, your background. You'd have to work too hard. If you're going to do anything, you should be a mechanical engineer, not an electrical engineer. And that's gonna... So what do we do for people that do want to go into it? I mean, young women, yes, let's get them involved. It's important. It's important to help them get that leg up. And men, and young boys, you know, young men. But young women especially. But what do we do for the older women that want to enter the force, except saying, sorry, honey. You know, I'll read a nice book about it. You know, it's like, it's not the same thing. So I'd like to see what we can do about that. I have an answer which you might not like, um, <laughs> but in my area of computer science, not only older women have a problem, but older men have a problem. Okay. This is a young, young field. If you're not in your 20 or your 30s and you get laid off, mm -hmm. you have a problem also if you're a man. In computer science so at least in this area mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to find a, a good answer because it's not only women who are struggling. No but I think coming back to your point of retraining um, older women mm -hmm. and possibly men who have interest in science and math but somehow didn't enter the formal pipeline. Yeah. Um, personally I think that the it's obviously tricky whether and how you could join the workforce, even if you did get trained. Mm -hmm. But one exciting thing that I think is happening that we've all probably sort of registering now are the MOOCs. So you can get trained, mm -hmm. you can learn, and then if you find a new passion, then you, know, you can find a route back in. So these massive open online courses, which are free, yeah. available on many platforms, there's some excellent courses in mathematics, I mean, every field. And so I think that there's room now for possibly people who did not discover their passion for science or gave it up early to... Either have to a kind family of, or do something else. Yeah, yeah to do something, you know, yeah. some way of... It may not be the quickest way to get a job, but it's a way to sort of grow your passion, and then if you're serious, you can probably find a route back in. Wouldn't you think... Yeah, I think I mean, one, of the, one of the challenges is, you know, our, like I said, you know, most people, assistant professors, I think you've, now you get your first NIH grant on average like at 42. Right. Right? So, I mean, this is, you know, because you've gone through graduate school, then you've gone through postdoctoral training. You know, that's sort of, that's sort of like when you're just getting going in some of these disciplines. I mean, it's pretty scary, you know. I mean, I, I went through quick, so I didn't miss that. But that's where we are now today. So it's a little bit hard, you know, to, to have a traditional career in science, mm -hmm. given that, you know, that it takes that long to even get. So then the question becomes, what are the other careers in science? And I, you know, this is something we talk to our students about who you know, maybe do not want to be doing the whole science thing, but there's science foundations, there's science the journalism, science there's yeah, all sorts of things. And so these are kind mm -hmm. of non-traditional careers which don't necessarily take all this. But, but you know, we aren't very good at identifying that. You know, and we're also not very good at counseling our students about it because it's not what we did, right? But there are quite a few non-traditional careers in science, I think, that you, know, you just have to kind of be creative about and, and look at and you know, see where the avenues are. Well, if, nothing, no, if nothing, I'm very creative. No, <laughs> but I, I have to say, I, I really think, but I just want to finish one point. I think that uh, it's not, there are definitely great education. You can learn a lot of things online. I agree that these courses are fantastic and so on. But I do want to leave this not on an optimistic point, because I think that this society admires youth. And getting jobs at older ages is much harder. 
And um, we have a huge population that's unemployed in their 20s. All my friends, their 20-year-olds are living at home with them, not working. So the older people are competing with these young people. So I, I think that maybe you could train yourself to do something else um, and maybe have a wonderful time and really enrich yourself. But I think that getting paid later is a whole different story. That's my take on things. It's not a happy one, but that's how I see things. Question and one question, the, the answer probably is not so quick. Do you find that women would submit articles more often to journals where the woman is an editor, uh, the, the editor is a woman? That's the, maybe the quick question. And the other is, do you see anything that women bring to science? Is there a particular sensibility that you believe women bring that does have a difference in it from a male scientist? So I, I personally have never even thought about who the editor is. Me neither. Yeah. Um, unless it was sort of like a science or nature where you kind of know who the editors are. They're professional editors. Yeah. Other than that, I've actually never thought. And I was an editor of a journal, and, you know, it just, it just didn't even occur to me to, you know, have that be so one of the things. It, it no, not, it did not. I mean, like I said, I, I wouldn't even, I couldn't even name the editors of most of the journals that I submit to. You usually um, submit to the editor in chief, also, and that's yeah. whoever yeah, but it is. Like, but then, then but different people you. evaluate it. Like so, the you know different, you know the, the, who evaluates it is not is not you know the editor sends it out to peers, and you are you don't know who those people are, right? In terms of the evaluation, which is really the critical part. Um, so I never really. You know, I mean, my view, I don't, I don't have the data. That's an interesting yeah. point. Would be worth looking at. Um, we've not had too many women editors, yeah. to, but I think there are some now who are on the editorial board, and um, it will be interesting to see whether that encourages more yeah. women to even sort of submit, Maybe. particularly for Nature and Science. That might be an interesting uh, Nature and place. Science, you don't I think. submit to the editor in chief. No, editor, no, well, we Nature, send it. To, we send it to people in our area. So there's an astronomy. It so happens yeah. that the astronomy. Women write, they are women, uh, the editors, and you know, I've submitted to them. Uh, yeah, but so, I mean, so then you nice know who the editor is, and you kind of know what they like and don't like, and I, I actually think they're pretty, because in, they in are our, pretty biased. In my field, my many um, journals say you send to the editor in chief, yeah. and the editor in chief distributes. I, it's a di I guess it's, it, different. it's different, there are little slightly yeah. different cultures and everything. About your second question, as I said, I don't think that women and men are the same, and I do think that we bring something special to the research. And going back to Priya's point about not discussing whether we have the aptitude or we don't have the aptitude, diversity, even in gender, in the research, makes a difference. And that's why the reason that I think that the question is also not interesting, because we need the women in order for it to be different. And I see when I work with my guy um, colleagues, as you've heard many times, I have only guy colleagues, <laughs> It's, I look at things differently, and it's, I can't put the finger on it. It's not that I can say, this is what, it, it, it's different. That's all I can say without. You know, I, you know I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I want to give a blanket answer on this because I don't understand it well enough. But I think there is a richness that comes from the diversity of experience, of backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. 
How well that correlates to gender more strongly, I'm not so sure, because I think that that spread in diversity is there in both genders. I mean, there are lots of men who think very laterally, and there are some men who think very linearly. There are lots of women who think laterally and lots of women who think linearly. So I don't know how that works. And I personally feel that it's a sort of a dangerous question. Uh, only because of the fact that um, there's a danger that certain biases can get reinforced with flawed data. You know, um, I think that the whole issue is dangerous. It's like yeah. a, a minefield when you're just walking between sometimes, you know, yeah. something blows up and you lose a leg. I, I think it's an extremely charged thing. But I think that the most important thing that, and, and, and I think it's okay to say things Absolutely. like I say, that we're not the same. People might be horrified, but especially women. What do you mean we're not the same? But it's okay to say things, and everybody can have a different thing. But I think that the problem is that we're not given equal opportunities. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if we're the same or not, but the opportunities should be yeah. the same. And that's why, and it's okay to discuss these things, and it's okay to say it, and it's okay to say things without data, and it's okay to say things with data. It's, it's, it's now on our topic of discussion. But I think when we get different pay, when we get, don't get the promotions, when we're not given this, when yeah, we don't it's get a level the playing field, you know, we're not the getting level the, playing the, field. The, the, the equal opportunities. Yeah. And that's what we should be fighting for. And I think there's no question that we contribute tremendously to every field that we're in. Absolutely. So, and I do want to say that I think that, you know, that, you know, much, I, I see in terms of women scientists who've been put in charge of things, they're just as variable as the men in terms of, yeah. you know, what they're good at. Exactly. I didn't understand at. what you said. What you did know, you say? They're just as variable as Very. the men, I think, in terms of what they're good at and not good at. And so yeah. I think part of the issue is, you know, sometimes people have a stereotype about what we're supposed to be like as women, and so we get assigned to things. Right. You know, you know I mean, it, you know, in some departments, I won't mention, but Christina knows, um, <laughs> you know, the women are always the director of undergraduate studies, and they're always Absolutely. so, you know, the problem is those stereotypes are sort of changing our responsibilities, and they're not getting the sort of, you know, they're in the more nurturing yes. administrative roles, not that they're necessarily nurturing people, because not all women are nurturing, right? Right. Um, and, you know, some men are nurturing, um, you know, and so I do worry a little bit about those, you know, those types of assignments, but I just feel like I've seen huge variability in women both Me too. I mean, that's how, exactly what I was you know, trying to say. That how huge receptive they are to these types of things, whether they actually think it's an issue or not an issue, um, and you know, variability in men too. Yeah. 